<laughs> I'm sure people can't watch on TV. Some people are listening to this on, on a podcast um, uh, in other countries even. So um, this letter is about fellowship. It's about fellowship with God uh, and also with each other. And so it's really exciting. And it begins to introduce us, uh, you know, in this letter to four key components that are found in fellowship. They are four elements that are actually required. So if you want to be in fellowship with each other, brothers and sisters, if you want to be in fellowship with God, these four components have to be present. They are confession, obedience, godliness, and doctrine. And we've already been introduced to the first two, confession and obedience. And these two uh, seem to be basically two sides of the same coin because they are very basic, they're very obvious, but essential. Because we try to obey and we fail. And so these two key components are essentials for us walking in the light, uh, admitting when we do something wrong, confessing our sins to God, asking for forgiveness, asking Him to cleanse us and to restore ourselves to fellowship with Him. This should be what we are constantly doing is, God, will you please restore me to your fellowship? You know, He has a fellowship. That's what we're wanting to tap into. And so, uh, will you please restore me? to fellowship with you. Please reconcile us. I've sinned again. It's a confession of sin. And then we continue to try to obey and to live right and walk right. So these first two are basically sides of the same coin. They're very obvious uh, essentials, but they're very necessary and essential. Um, The last two that we're going to be introduced to in the letter are presented to us in the forms of warnings. And so uh, we are being warned against godliness, or against worldliness, sorry. And we are being warned against false doctrine. And so uh, by rejecting worldliness, we are embracing godliness. By rejecting things that are not true, we are embracing truth. We are embracing pure doctrine, clean, pure doctrine. And so what is going to happen now, uh, in this letter, remember, it opens with this prologue that we spent so much time talking about who Jesus is. This is who we proclaim to you. Hang on to that. Keep, keep, close and keep that close to your chest. Hold it dear. And then finally we moved into confession of sin and then obedience. And so now we are going to be looking at some warnings. This fella here is... Uh, did it turn? There, is, that, is Chuck up there? That's Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll. Uh, he was born October 18th, 1934, in Wharton County, Texas. I had to look that up. It's outside of Houston. And so uh, he grew up uh, a godly fella, and he played in the marching band in high school. His primary instrument was the clarinet. And then when he went into the Marine Corps, he played in the Marine Corps' marching band. When he got out of the military, he went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and he graduated uh, straight A's. He graduated magna cum laude in four years, which is extraordinary. I've talked about that school and how it is four years of Hebrew and four years of Greek, and it's the, it's the real deal. The average load is nine hours. 
and their, their master's degree is four years. So it is a killer. And very few people graduate there in four. Well, he did it in four with straight A's. So extraordinary in that respect. And then he is, after that time, he has went on to be a pastor. And he served, as a, he served God as a pastor since 1963. And so uh, he's been in a couple of different places where he served. He, he actually ended up being the president of Dallas Seminary at one point. He is the author of many books. But you may know him best for his Insights for Living Ministry, which you can actually hear on the radio on channel 1160. It's been on for many years. I've grown up listening to the voice of Chuck Swindoll. But when he was in the Marine Corps, he was first stationed in San Francisco, and then he was transferred to Okinawa in Japan. And so as he was on his way to Okinawa, they were going to dock in a place called, uh, let me get this right, Yokohama, which is just across from the Tokyo Bay. And so they were pulling in there. So this was going to be the, the first time that many of these fellows had set foot on foreign soil. And so as they were moving into this bay, the ship was navigating around landmines that were still left over from World War II. And so they're moving through these landmines and the full colonel, full, full colonel, called all of the men to assembly. There was 3,500 men on this enormous, uh, this massive troop ship that was getting ready to dock. And so he called all of these men to attention. And he was going to warn them, but he wasn't going to warn them about mines. He was going to warn them about where they were getting ready to go, what was getting ready to happen to them. They were getting ready to go and be unleashed. These pent-up soldiers were getting ready to be unleashed on the streets of Japan. And so he said, first, a message to every one of you, you'll be wearing our uniform. And I hope that as I read this, you're seeing what I'm trying to do, because it's very applicable to us. He said, first, a message to every one of you, you'll be wearing our uniform. It's the uniform of the United States Marine Corps. You're representing our country while you're on this land. Don't bring reproach to our land and our country. Behave yourselves. Some of you are older men. You've traveled abroad before. You know better what to expect. But you're not safe any more than the younger men. Remember these things today. Less than two days from now, at 1100 hours, we will be leaving this dock, and I want all of you back on this ship. Now between now and then, you're going to find yourselves among great crowds of people. Watch out for pickpockets. Be careful what you eat and where you eat. Don't buy any food off the street. In some parts of the city, there's open prostitution. Don't be stupid. The bars would love to see you come in, and they would love to see you flat on the floor. And when you wake up, you'll have nothing of value that belonged to you. So discipline yourselves. And then Chuck Swindoll went on to say that I hardly need to tell you that a number of men promptly dismissed those warnings. And he began to describe how these men returned to the ship. He began to describe how these men were returning to the ship uh, broke, robbed, sick, food poisoning. And some of them even had long-term diseases that they had picked up along the way. 
He said, I'll never forget it. As the ship was pulling away, they could see sailors running down the dock, waving their ties, calling for the ship to stop. But of course, the ship did not stop. So in our text this morning, we are going to read a, uh, a message that John is getting ready to say to Christians, where he is he's warning us. And before he does that, he makes an address. It's kind of like if, if you said, all right, ladies and gentlemen, okay, children, great and small, it's, a, it's an address to all of us as a church. And he's, he's going to make this address, and the purpose of it is to remind us of who we are. And I opened this morning talking a little bit about the election, and I, I asked us to remember who we are. We are Christians first. We are not Americans first. We are Christians first. Our faith in Christ comes before anything else. That's number one. So before you say, I'm black, I'm white, I'm Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm an American, as a Christian, you are a Christian first. Never forget that. No matter what is happening around us in this world, whether this election goes this way or it goes this way or the nation sinks or swims, we've got to stand. Whether we find ourselves taken captive and living in a ghetto on the banks of the Chibar River in Babylon, we have to stay focused. We are believers. And so this announcement that he is making is to the church. And the primary objective is to remind us of who we are. Christians. And after that, he will give the warnings. And so our passage this morning is very short. It's just three verses, and we're going to begin reading in verse 12 of chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. Now, as we look at this, we obviously see that there are three sets of uh, there's two sets of threes here where he is introducing us obviously to three different categories of people. Children, fathers, and young men. So first he addresses children, then fathers, and then young men. And then he addresses children, fathers, and young men. So these are obviously categories of age groups. But as we look at what he is saying about them, we realize that the descriptions that he's giving of children and young men and fathers is universally true for all Christians. Equally. All Christians have all of the descriptions that are being given to these children, these young men, and these fathers. And uh, we can break them down like that. Little children, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. In 1 John 1.7, it tells us that, But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Every believer has been forgiven of his sins. This is a universal truth only for born-again Christians. We have all been forgiven and cleansed of our sins. We also have the knowledge of God. What's that mean? Well, I've, I've picked out 1 John 5.20 there for you. I find a, I've tried to find the, a verse in this letter for each one of these. There's several actually, but if you look at chapter 5, verse 20, you'll see that it says, We know that the Son of God has come. And the Son of God has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we see there that Jesus has given us understanding, the knowledge of God. It's a gift. It's a, the greatest present of all. It's something that we as believers possess. And then finally is overcomers. There's so much to say about each one of these. But in chapter 4, four verse 4, it says that you and I, we are from God, little children, and we have overcome them. Who is them? And it says, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And so these are three descriptions that all believers possess. Even though John has addressed us as children, fathers, and young men. Now, let's notice the order. We first have children, and then we have fathers, and then young men. And then in the second sequence, it stays the same. We have children, fathers, and then young men. Now, I will tell you that this passage uh, seems so straightforward, but it has confounded Bible scholars probably since the moment John wrote them. Because the first question is, is who is he talking to? Is he talking to three different age groups of people in the church? Is he talking about three different spiritual levels of maturity in the church? What is he talking about? What do you think? Let's read it again. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you've come to know the One who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the One who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's Word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. Another issue is that in the first set, he says, I am writing to you. And then beginning in verse 17, in the second set, he says, I have written to you. Why does he change the tense of the verb? So many questions. And on Wednesday night, we've been studying how to study the Bible. And so you know that we are in the observation period where we are gathering data, trying to understand this. 
You can't just walk into this and interpret it. And so I have the advantage over you because I've spent quite a bit of time studying this and thinking about it and reading it. And so I have went through that process ahead of you. This is one of the reasons I've encouraged us to read this letter through several times a week. So that when you come to church Sunday morning, this, this page is fresh. These words are fresh. And by the way, if you've been reading this, then you've already asked yourself the question, who are these people? What is he doing here? This is something that actually uh, we, we do and benefit from when we read the Bible ahead of time. I've read chapters 2, verses 12, 13, and 14, so if all things go as planned, guess what is going to be our text next Sunday? 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. And so if we read these things ahead of time, we will find our brain asking these questions. And our hearts will ponder them and we will begin to study and think these things through for ourselves. So let's look at these two sets. First we have children, then fathers, and then young men. Now, in chapter, 12, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, little children. Now this is a way that John addresses Christians several times in this letter. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, is he just writing to little bitty kids? Is he just writing to young, little bitty new Christians? He's writing to everybody. In verse 12, he's writing to everybody. In verse 18 of chapter 2, children, it is the last hour. Is he talking about just a little bit? Is he talking to little bitty kids? Is he talking to just new believers? No, this is to the entire congregation. And so you will see this in chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 5, verse 21. This is what John does when he refers to Christians as little children. And why does he do that? Because when John is writing this, he is an old man, he is an apostle. John is a fellow who was called into the ministry by Jesus personally. And he walked with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus crucified. He saw Jesus rose from the dead. And he is an apostle. And so he is looking back over a long, illustrious life as a believer. And so by every right, he can refer to the people he has led to Christ as his little children. So in this first set of children, fathers, and young men, he's talking to everybody. It's a collective term. Now in the second sequence, he uses a different Greek word. He uses the word children, which is a different Greek word. And so a lot of people have made hay out of that. Oh, something different's happening now. But that's not the case. This same word basically means the same thing. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was, I think it was in Mark chapter 10, when he was saying, unless you're, you become like these little kids, these little children, unless you have faith like these little children, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Same word. So from the very beginning in verse 12, what is happening is John is making a general address collectively to all Christians to the church. And then he breaks the church down into two subgroups, fathers and young men. 
seniors in the church and younger people in the church who are under their tutelage. And so this is a collective message to the entire church. Now, why does he do it that way? It's like, all right, you guys, Liberty Missionary. Fathers, I have this to say. Young men, I have this to say. So it's all of us, and then he breaks us down into two subgroups. You might notice that women are not mentioned here. How does that go over for you? That is not intended to elevate men over women. Rather, John is stating the order of responsibility. It's the order of responsibility of stewardship in the church. Men are supposed to be the spiritual leaders. Most churches have a lopsided congregation of more women than men. And all too often, men are not the spiritual leaders at all. As a matter of fact, if it were for some women, there wouldn't be any men in church. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. We saw that order when Jesus would submit to the Father. We see that order in the household. And it's certainly true in the church. God is asking men to put their shoes on, fill their shoes, and lead. And so women are obviously included in the term little children. Women are also obviously included in the term fathers. And women are also obviously included in the term young men because I've said many times that uh, this is my first pastorate. And if it weren't for Lana, I don't know what I would have done. Of course, Lana's a woman. So let's look at what's said here. And uh, by the way, if I haven't proved that point, let me just say this about this. Uh, for so long, it has been thought that children, young men, and, and, and fathers was breaking this down by spiritual maturity. And it's, it just can't be. Because, first of all, the sequence is weird. The sequence is odd. It's, the sequence is strange. Fathers are in the middle. It's children, then fathers, then young men. It should be fathers, young men, and kids, or kids, young men, and fathers. So the sequence is off. That should be a clue right then and there. <laughs> I can only talk for so long I have to stop and he changes the thing on the camera. So, so if, you, if I ever talk mid-sentence or stop mid-sentence, that's what's happening. But uh, So the, the sequence is, is odd. And because it's odd, uh, we've been studying how to do Bible interpretation, observation before you interpret. The, more, uh, the better job you do observing, the better you'll, job you'll do of interpreting. And the more time you spend on observation, the less time you'll have to spend on interpretation. Well, right off the bat, we know little kids, little children. This is a term that John has used repeatedly to talk to the whole church. So are we going to violate that principle when we come here? No, we're going to recognize that John is talking to everybody. And then we've got this unique sequence where he goes fathers to young men. And another reason we know this, this is not spiritual growth 
uh, he's talking about spiritual growth necessarily is because when you look at what is being said about each group of people, it's up there on the screen, those are not growth-appropriate descriptions. All Christians possess those things. If it was going to be growth-appropriate, it would be something like, ask you this, does a new believer struggle with sins that maybe an older believer, a more mature believer does not? When I got repented of my sins and I went to Calvary Baptist Church on that Wednesday night and I was introduced to all these men of God, these deacons and fellows who've been living for God for the majority of their lives, do you think they were struggling with the same things I was struggling with? Some, yes. So when we talk about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, there's, there's a, a spectrum of people who've been living for God for a little bit of time and people who've been living for God for a lot of time. And then you can see that in their lifestyle, in their behavior. John isn't talking about behavior here. He's talking about facts. He's talking about attributes of Christians. If you want to talk about behavior, then you're going to talk about this wide spectrum of spiritual growth of how you can have someone who is obedient Someone who is better at handling temptation. Someone who has a deeper prayer life. Someone who has a wider knowledge of God from the Scriptures, from studying the Scriptures for a longer period of time. You could be talking about someone who has stronger faith. Those are things that all occur in spiritual growth. John isn't talking about that. He's talking about how we've all been forgiven of our sins. How we all have the knowledge of God and we have overcome the world. We have overcome the evil one. John is reminding us who we are as believers. That's why he's talking to us from seniority perspective. He's saying, hey Christians, some of you have been doing this a long time, and guess what? You're getting ready to die. Death is soon. It's imminent for you. You are ripe for glory. All of the things that you've been waiting for are not far away. Your struggles are almost over. Run the race strong. What a great title. Finish strong. And for the rest of you, you are strong. Strong for work. This is the perspective. This is the picture that we have. And so in verse 12, he says, all of you have, been, have had your sins forgiven because of Jesus' name. Not because you were good. Not because you go to church. Not because you quit doing some habit or something. Only because of Jesus. Your faith in Jesus is the reason you have your sins forgiven. And in verse 14 at the beginning, he tells us that all children also have come to know the Father. And for fathers, he says, you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And young men, you are strong. God's word remains in you and you have had victory over the evil one. Howard Marshall is a Scottish New Testament scholar and he wrote of this. All Christians should have the innocence of childhood, the strength of youth, and the pure and the mature knowledge of age. Well, we've spent so much time talking about the forgiveness of sin, and so I just wanted to look a little closer at these last two. The knowledge of God. Two weekends ago, my daughter Chloe was telling me about how she uh, was in kind of an unusual circumstance where she was around a lot of people who were unbelievers. Uh, some of them were referring to themselves as atheists. 
some of them uh, were very condescending to her because they knew she was a Christian. But that didn't bother, that, that might have bothered her a little bit, but what bothered her the most was she was just so dumbstruck with their complete lack of knowledge of God. They were so smart. They had so much to say. They were, their opinions were so grounded. But they were completely void of any knowledge of God. The things that I think Christians, we can take for granted. It's what Paul was saying, you know, that the, that the, that the knowledge of God is foolishness to the world. But to us, it's, it's the, the power of God. Think about that verse I read, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. It says that this is what we know spiritually, not intellectually, you guys. Uh, these fellows, lost people don't have what we have. They, we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Chloe was at a loss for words, and it humbled her because... She knows God. And as you are around people who are wrestling with politics, they are wrestling with addictions, they are wrestling with whatever, bills, relationships that are collapsing, you're around people all the time like that. And do they have God? Do they have the knowledge of God? I butchered, I was trying to quote... I was trying to quote, I think it's 1 Corinthians 1.18. I, I butchered quoting it, but it says, For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, it is the knowledge, it is the power of salvation. I think I still butchered that. We're going to read it. We're going to read it. I think I still butchered it. This is a different translation than how I memorized it. It says, For those... But to those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the knowledge of God that we have that the world does not have. And we are also overcomers. What does that mean? You've heard of that term, of men's fellowships and stuff, overcomers. The Bible describes Christians as overcomers. And John is describing overcomers here as, as young and strong. And God's Word remains in us. Some, some really beautiful ways of describing us that we have overcome, we have victory over the evil one. I would point your attention to the book of Revelation, the first two chapters, or chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. That just, it gives, a, I think it's like seven or eight uh, promises that we are giving as overcomers. Just rapid fire these promises over these, over these two chapters. Um, if you think about the book of Revelation, you, you know that chapters 2 and 3 are these letters that John wrote to these seven churches. But while you're reading through all of these churches, uh, he's giving us all of these promises all along the way. In chapter 2, verse 7, he tells us that the overcomers will eat from the tree of life. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says that the overcomers will be unharmed by the second death. 
That's the judgment that all men, great and small, will stand before God at the great white throne of judgment. And everyone's name who was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. Overcomers will be unharmed by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, We will eat from the hidden manna and, listen to this, we'll be given a new name. Chapter 2, verse 26 says that we will have authority over nations. That's interesting. Chapter 3, verse 5 tells us that we will be clothed in white garments. Chapter 3, verse 12 says we will be made a permanent pillar in the house of God. Chapter 3, verse 21 says that we will sit with Jesus on His throne. <laughs> and then in chapter 21, at the end of the book, we find out that there's this contrast between believers and unbelievers, overcomers and the wicked, and that we are described as heirs of the promise. John is getting ready to give us some very serious warnings, and the, the reason we're being given the warnings is because uh, Christians, all of us, uh, fail at heeding warnings. Statistically, it just goes to show that uh, we've looked at all of those sailors that got off that ship and they went on the shores of Japan and some of them made it back on the ship in one piece and others didn't. Some of them didn't even get back on the ship at all. And so it only goes to show that statistically, as we move through these warnings over the next few weeks, some of us will heed the warnings and some of us won't. There are consequences for not heeding them. And so before John begins... He wants us to remember who we are. In unsettled times, who we are. In times of temptation, who we are. In times when we want to worry. In times of great happiness when we tend to, to get too proud. God wants us to stay grounded in who we are in Christ. And that is how we can move forward uh, as we look at these warnings. So abiding in Jesus is not easy, but it's always worth it. So let's pray.